If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, we're in chapter 1. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 983, Colossians chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Fathers, we approach your word this morning. Would you decrease my influence? It increased the Holy Spirit's work through your word. Speak loudly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Wednesday nights, if you've been with us for, for some time now, I guess a month, <laughs> we have been examining from Scripture what a healthy church looks like, what it should look like. So far, we've, we've had the opportunity to talk about who the church is, what, what, a church it, what a church is, how the church is a body, what that means, and how the church is a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, what the Bible calls the temple. Last week, we talked about how a healthy church has a, a biblical understanding of conversion. It's been, I've enjoyed it. It's been a good interactive study as I've gotten to know you, and if you haven't been able to come, I invite you to join us during that time, because what we're doing you want to know this, we are laying for the groundwork for what's in front of us as a church for this next season of, of this church's life. So you want to be aware of, of the foundations that we're building on. So if you want to see what it looks like for us as a church to be faithful to God's call, Wednesday nights is, is a time when we're doing that. In the meantime, here on Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Colossians together and, and seeing Paul's instructions for this ancient 
ancient church. And so what we see in this morning's text is that Paul describes for them, for the Colossians, what a faithful gospel ministry looks like. So we get some crossover, don't we? Wednesday night and Sunday nights are going to marry this morning. If we, it makes sense, though, doesn't it? If, if we're studying what a healthy church looks like from God's word, then we know that we have to have a faithful ministry. And so when we look to Paul's ministry, that's going to be a lot of what we're drawing from. So we need to know this. Our health as a church, our well-being is dependent on faithful ministry. If what we're doing is not faithful to God's call on us, if it is something else, if it is self-serving or self-promoting or entertainment-driven, or if it is motivated by pragmatism or what we think people might want rather than what God has called us to, then it isn't faithful ministry. It's something else. It's, it's worldliness with a facade of godliness. It's a sham. And listen, that kind of ministry will never be blessed. It will never be blessed by God with sustainable gospel spiritual growth. So what we're going to do this morning is look at how Paul describes his ministry. And we're going to use that for our measure, measure of faithfulness in ministry. So this is all application, but we also get some, some insight into the gospel here. So then I want you, as we're listening, I want you to be thinking about whatever ministries that you are participating in. And, and I want you to be thinking about our broader ministry as a church. And just ask this question, okay? Is the ministry that I am participating in faithful? Does it bear the markers of faithful ministry? If you're in the process, if you're visiting with us and you're in the process of, of looking for a church, finding a church to belong to, these are the qualities that you're going to be want. You want to look for these, okay? So whether it's our church or some other church, be looking for these seven qualities that we'll look at this morning in this text. I say there are seven. That's a lot. So let's begin right now with number one. Number one, a faithful ministry completes Christ's work by making the word of God fully known. Faithful ministry completes Christ's work. Look at verse 24 there in our text. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, if you read this and you think, what? What in the world? D didn't Jesus say, it is finished on the cross, didn't he? Yes, yes, he did. Didn't Christ's work on the cross accomplish all that he needed to accomplish for us to be reconciled to him? Yes, yes and amen, absolutely. We can add nothing to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God and made righteous by Christ's work alone, according to the grace of God alone. Well, how then, 
How then can faithful gospel ministry ever be said to complete the work of Christ? That's it's pretentious, isn't it? Completing Christ's work. Filling up what is lacking in his afflictions, as if Christ's afflictions lacked anything at all. Christ's afflictions. What he suffered on the cross when the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sins. His atoning work was and is sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. Christ's work is immeasurable. How can Christ's cross ever be said to be lacking anything? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions, what is lacking in the cross, has nothing to do with its power, church. What is lacking is the application of the work of the cross. Think about it this way. When you go to the post office and you purchase a book of stamps and you've got a stack of envelopes to mail away, does the act of purchasing the stamps cover the cost of postage? Postage, Yes, it does. The postage has been paid for. The purchase has been accomplished. The stamps you hold in one hand are sufficient to cover the postage for the envelopes you hold in the other hand. But is the work finished? Or as Paul would say, is it fulfilled? Is it completed? No, it's not. The stamp must be applied to the envelope, mustn't it? You can't just hold on to the stamps and mail off those envelopes. Return to sender. Insufficient funds. Stamps must be applied. So in the same way, Christ's suffering under the wrath of God has paid the price for our redemption. But even his work must be applied. And his work is applied to us through faith. Faith is what gives us access to the atoning work of Christ. It's what applies Christ's work to us. But where does faith come from? Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We'll only be there for a moment, so keep one thumb in Colossians and a finger in in Romans chapter 10. That's page 946 in your pew Bible. Romans 10, 13 through 17. This is an absolutely crucial passage for our understanding of the means that God uses to save his people. Verse 13, you memorize this one. For, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know that verse? Okay, keep reading. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, if we work that backwards, we begin with the word of Christ. That's another way of saying the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. So we have the gospel. And then what happens? We proclaim it. We proclaim it. 
people hear it and then they believe it. And in faith, they cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation. But what has to happen? What has to happen, young people who are going to Costa Mesa? You've got to proclaim it. Gospel proclamation must happen. How will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear without someone proclaiming? So Paul, and our go back to Colossians now. Paul is saying here that he considers himself among the proclaimers. Not the I would walk 500 miles proclaimers, but, but the, the I would be whipped, I would be beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and tried and convicted and jailed and kicked out of cities and persecuted by nearly everyone everywhere I go to as I proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the type of proclaimer that Paul is. He's filling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions That means he's taking the message of the infinite value of Christ's afflictions and he's proclaiming it to the people. And he does that, even if that means suffering. Even knowing that that means suffering for the sake of the cross. So faithful gospel ministry is completing Christ's work by proclaiming the gospel, making the word of God fully known. So here's a question, here's your your takeaway. Is your ministry proclaiming the gospel? Number two, faithful gospel ministry displays the glorious riches of the mystery of our union with Christ. In verse 25, Paul says his ministry is to make the word of God fully known. And then look how he describes the word of God. He says it is, verse 26, the word of God is the mystery hidden for ages in generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when you see that word mystery, Don't think Perry Mason or Agatha Christie or a riddle. That's not what Paul's talking about. By mystery, he doesn't mean enigma, mysterious. A mystery is simply this. It's something that was hidden but is now revealed. It was hidden. It is now revealed. In the Old Testament times, it was hidden from Israel how exactly the nations The the estranged people who were not the people of God, it was hidden from the people of God how those outsiders were going to be brought in. How even they would be reconciled to God and brought in to his family. Israel understood how, how they were a part of God's family. They had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and they had David and all of them are related by blood. And that they, they knew that through their their family, that they were God's covenant people. But it had been hidden from them how those outside of that family were going to be brought in to share in the same privileges that God's people had. What was hidden has now been revealed. The mystery of what makes all of us one people together 
is Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that the nations in you and me and the Colossians. It's in Christ that we are brought in to the people of God. Most of our ancestors were worshiping trees and mountains and Odin and Thor. But in the one man Jesus Christ, Jews and barbarians like us, we are brought in. We are made one people with God's people. But then then Paul doesn't just say the mystery is Christ, does he? He doesn't stop there. Look again at verse 27. Don't take your eyes off the word. He says the mystery is Christ in you. You see that? Christ in you. How in the world is Christ in us? It's through the Spirit. Got another Bible passage for you to go to. Go to page 901 now. John chapter 14. Now in that passage in John 14, this is close to the end of Jesus' life, and he's explaining to the disciples that he alone is is the one that gives access to the Father. Here's another memory verse you probably know. In John 14, 6, he says to the disciples, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ alone is our access to the Father. And Jesus is saying, and you can, you can imagine his disciples are thinking, you're here with us, Jesus, and through you we have access to the Father. This is going to be very good. I, we have a bright future in front of us. And then not long after that, he goes on and he tells his disciples, actually, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you here. And I'm going to be with the Father. And you can just, you can imagine. They've had this great news, and then, but you're leaving? How how is it now that we'll have access to the Father through you? If, If Jesus is going to be separate from us, how will we have access to the Father? But then Jesus isn't done talking, so we keep reading. Skip down to John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then if you skip down to John 14, 20, just a few verses later, Jesus says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. We're in him, and he's in us. We are unified. That is the mystery of the union that we have with Christ. Through the Spirit, Christ is in us. Through faith in Christ, we are in Christ. It's a union. We're unified with Christ. We are one with Christ. He isn't so separated from us that we, at a, at a distance, place our faith in him. He's so near to us through the spirit that we actually enter into Christ. It's a mystery. It was hidden from a long time ago. It's now been revealed to us in Christ. Friends, this is your salvation. Have you ever thought about your salvation is union with Christ? 
Let me show you what I mean by that. Your, your very salvation is rooted in Christ, our union with Christ. There are four essential aspects of our salvation that are rooted in Christ. Number one, through our union with Christ, we share in Christ's death. We cannot be saved unless we die to our old selves. Christ has taken our old selves onto the cross with him. Romans 6.6, 6, just write it down. If we are unified with him, then we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So through our union with Christ, we share in his death. We share in his death to the flesh. That was from Romans 6.6. 6. Number two, from Romans 6.5 we see we share in his resurrection. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because of our union with Christ, we share in Christ's resurrection. Uh, this might be totally new to many of you. And, and if it is, I, I want to assure you, you were not saved alone. You were saved into Christ Jesus. Let's keep going. Number three, we share in his ascension. His ascension. His raising up into heaven. From Ephesians 2, verse 5 and 6, we see this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And he raised us up with him. There's that resurrection again. And then look what he says. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Being seated already in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus means we share in Christ's ascension. Number four, last one. We share in his promised return through our union with Christ. We're going to see this one in a few weeks. Colossians 3. So if you're still there in Colossians, look at verse 4 from chapter 3. I cannot wait to preach this passage. <laughs> when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So because of our union with Christ, we share in his return. We share in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his promised return. A faithful gospel ministry knows this. And it puts on display the glorious mystery of our union with Christ. Because it is through our union with Christ that we are saved. So if your ministry is music, then we sing through that about our union with Christ. If your ministry is teaching, teach about our union with Christ. If your ministry is to children or to youth, or to homeless, or the refugee, or the drug addicted, or whatever it is, if you don't put on display the beauty of our union with Christ, then your message of salvation will be anemic, and weak, and incomplete, and ineffective. We must see that it is completely in Christ that our ministry is founded, and that our salvation is found. A faithful ministry displays in its fullness the glory of the gospel. And the weightiest glory of the gospel is that idea of our union with Christ. Mark number three, we're going to speed it up a little bit. 
Mark number three, a faithful gospel ministry proclaims the good news through warning and teaching with wisdom. Look at verse 28. This is a mark of Paul's ministry. It should be a mark of ours. Verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning and teaching. Why both? Because we need both, don't we? If we only teach, then we are lulled into self-confidence, the very thing that we are supposed to be steering away from as Christians. Even learning good things, even learning good things can, can make us confident in ourselves to the point where we overlook or we ignore the seriousness of the sin that's in our lives. We can teach and teach and teach to the point where our people know in order Every one of the kings of Israel and Judah and the dates of their reigns. We can teach and teach so that we have all of the parables of Jesus almost memorized. We can teach to the point where we are so puffed up with knowledge that we become overconfident. And we think that because we know stuff about the Bible, that when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to be asking us questions. That's why proclaiming the good news isn't just teaching. It's also warning. A faithful gospel ministry is bold enough to tell people when they are dangerously close to idolatry. When a person begins to cherish something, anything other than Christ, what do they need? They need to be warned. When a person begins to stray from the hope of the gospel and to place their hope in anything else, they need to be warned. Come back, brother. Come back, sister. You are so close to abandoning Christ, your first love, as your hope. Come back. We warn them. Come and see again Christ in his fullness. But it's not all warnings either, is it? What kind of ministry would that be? Rather dour. In the same way that overteaching and underwarning leads to self-confidence, a failure to teach can lead to a failure to cherish Christ. If we are to cherish Jesus Christ, if all that we have in salvation is found in Him, then we need to teach and teach and teach on Him. Why? So that we'd be filled with the knowledge of Christ. And we would know that our joy is in him. We are to teach on Christ so that our hope would be found in him. Over and over again, teach Christ. Teach Christ. There are riches that are only available through teaching. So now why does Paul say warning and teaching everyone with wisdom? What does he mean by that? Because wisdom is knowing when a person needs a warning and when a person needs to be taught. Is this person simply lacking an understanding about who Jesus is? And so they just need to be pointed to Christ? Or is this person so caught up in their sin that the only way to draw them out is to give them a warning from Scripture? 
only wisdom, only wisdom can tell you when to use which of those methods. So a faithful gospel ministry warns and teaches with all wisdom. Mark number four. The goal of faithful gospel ministry is to present believers mature in Christ. When we think of ministry, let's just be honest for a moment. What do we normally think of? We think of converts. How, how many people did this ministry convert? How many people were baptized this year? How many people prayed a prayer or walked the aisle or made a decision for the Lord? But Paul says nothing about conversion here. And actually, if you read his letters, you'll never see merely converting people as Paul's goal. What is the aim of his ministry? Look at verse 28. He teaches and warns that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why maturity? Because maturity in Christ means that the church better reflects the nature and character of Christ. If we are mature in Christ, then when the world looks at us, they see the love of Christ on display. They see the union of Christ and us on display in the life of the church. When we look more like Christ, when we've grown up and been knit together into Christ, then God is more glorified because we look more like Jesus. And it is Jesus who more perfectly bears the image of God. Listen, a, a faithful gospel ministry is never content corralling a nursery full of overgrown baby Christians. Shuffling immature Christians from one activity to the next activity and entertaining them and distracting them so they won't cry. One starts crying because he didn't get to sing his favorite song. And then another starts whining because the music was too loud or the high chair was too hard or the room is too hot or it's too cold or she doesn't like the color blue or there aren't enough potlucks, or there aren't enough fun events, you name it, and an immature Christian will complain about it. We can expend all of our energy and resources trying to make everyone comfortable, or we can be faithful. Faithful gospel ministry isn't working to appease baby Christians or make baby Christians more comfortable in their immaturity. And it certainly is not working to be so sensitive so non-Christians would be comfortable in their sin. Faithful gospel ministry lovingly and patiently nourishes and equips and challenges everyone to repent and believe. Repent and believe day by day, slowly but surely seeing to it that all are presented mature in the faith. Then what does that take? Well, Paul's already told us, faithfully warning and teaching with wisdom. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit. That leads us to Mark number five. Faithful gospel ministry is totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Verse 29. Paul says, for this I toil... 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Read that again really carefully. Look at your text. Paul says, I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. To whom does the he and his refer to? Not Paul. Paul does not struggle and toil on his own. He struggles with Christ's energy. The energy that Christ powerfully works within Paul through the Spirit. This energy isn't like caffeine. The Holy Spirit isn't a Red Bull. What Paul is talking about is the power to sustain the difficulty of faithful gospel ministry. It is the power to persevere even in the face of opposition. Because where there is faithful gospel ministry, friends, there will be opposition. Lots of opposition. Opposition from Satan. Opposition from the world. And worst of all, opposition from our own flesh. See, pouring ourselves out day after day in service to others with no return on our investment, laying awake at night, praying for some person or some situation because the thought of whatever it is is too burdensome to pass on through sleep. Faithfulness requires studying the word requires pleading with God in prayer. It requires avoiding temptation. It requires opening up our homes and our lives and our time and our pocketbooks to others. It's absolutely exhausting if you're relying on your own power. What does the flesh say when it's totally exhausted? When it has poured itself out? What does the flesh say? It says give up. Flesh says, take a break. Give up and try something else. The flesh has a tendency towards laziness and withdrawal and bitterness and cynicism, and there's no greater enemy. But the Spirit does not have those tendencies. Thank God. The Spirit takes the long view. Even in the midst of difficulty, when we are on empty and when we feel helpless and powerless, it is the Spirit. Spirit who strengthens us for the task. The Spirit gives us God's perspective. He gives us that eternal perspective that we do not have on our own, that we can't conjure up on our own. We are short-sighted, but the Spirit sees the glory out in front of us. 2 Corinthians 4.16. When you are discouraged, read this passage. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faithful gospel ministry is not self-dependent. It is not self-reliant. It is dependent on the Holy Spirit's power. Because without the Holy Spirit's power, friends, we cannot be faithful. 
and we can't proclaim the gospel, and we can't do ministry. There really, there really isn't an option. Either we pray, and we ask that the Spirit would work in us the ability to persevere in the ministry and make our ministry effective, or we simply will fail. We'll fail to be faithful. We'll fail to be fruitful. We'll flame out. We'll either burn out or we'll uh, give in to moral failure. Or we'll simply just we'll fade away. Faithful gospel ministry is prayerfully and totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Mark number six, a faithful gospel ministry is Christ-centered. Look at chapter two now. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So this first section of chapter 2 is a summary of everything we looked at at the end of chapter 1. Only now Paul is, is taking what he's taught the Colossians and he's saying, all that I said about all those ministries that I have to all these churches, that's true for you. He's applying what he has said directly to the Colossian church and the church in Laodicea. He's saying the struggle that he goes through in faithful gospel ministry, it's not just a generalized struggle. It's purposeful. It's a struggle for these local churches, real people. And then look at why he does it. Why does he struggle in this way? Well, he wants, he wants all Christians everywhere to be encouraged and unified. He wants them to have assurance in their faith and understanding in their faith as they grow toward Christ. Christ is at the center. Like, like an orbiting planet, all we do is we're moving out from Christ and back into Christ, moving around and towards and back out and around and towards Christ. He's the center of Paul's ministry. He, he's the weight. He's the, the centripetal force that Paul is revolving around, and that our ministry should be revolving around and pointing to. It's Christ. That means that all that we teach should be centered around the person and the work of Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, if we're teaching and we're not pointing to Christ, then we aren't teaching. It means that all we celebrate is centered around the person and work of Christ. It means that all we sing is clearly and brightly centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that when we speak, when we speak to one another, it becomes clear to everyone that the word of Christ is dwelling in this person richly. It means that all we do is done in the name of Christ, not ourselves. We do not exist to make ourselves as individuals or even our collective selves as Del Cerro Baptists look good. 
we exist to magnify Jesus Christ, to glorify him alone. All salvation comes from Christ. All growth comes from Christ. All glory goes to Christ. And if our entire mission is centered on Jesus Christ, you know what that does? Look again at verse 4. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Centering our ministry on Christ keeps us from being led astray, church. And I don't mean just led astray into cults. I mean led astray from our center, Jesus Christ, in any way. If we begin to lose Christ as the center of our ministry, then we begin to lose our ministry. We are so easily led astray, especially with plausible arguments, things that work. We call that pragmatism. Sometimes it makes sense. It's plausible to compromise and move our center from proclaiming Christ fully to something else, like gathering lots of people or trying to be accepted by the world. There are things we can do to get people in these doors. Or there's things we can do to make our message softer or lighter or more appeasing to others. But that's not our aim. Getting these pews filled is not our aim. Having everyone else accept a light, flimsy, worthless version of Christianity is not our aim. Presenting everyone mature in Christ is. So our means are to faithfully center our ministry around him. Pointing people away from their worldly loves into him, Jesus Christ alone. Mark number seven, last one. Faithful gospel ministry rejoices in the faithful ministry of others. Look at verse five in chapter two. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Remember, Paul did not plant this church in Colossae. Epaphras did. So Paul actually had very little to do with this church. But you know what he did? He prayed for them. Prayer to the point of what we would call struggle, labor. And he knew that his labor for other churches was in fact labor for Colossae. Why? Because they are all one in Christ. So us and Centro Shalom are one in Christ. So when they rejoice, we rejoice. When they have a victory in Christ, when they're maturing in Christ, we rejoice with them and we pray with them. And so Paul is rejoicing in the Colossians' good order and their firmness and their faith in Christ. See, a faithful gospel ministry rejoices in the faithful ministry of others. We're not competing with them. There should be no competition between one faithful gospel ministry and another. They have the same aim as we do if they're being faithful. Present everyone mature in Christ so that we would all bring glory to Christ together. If that's the goal, then whenever and wherever saints are maturing in Christ-likeness, we rejoice. 
we rejoice in those churches who are being faithful to their call. And we pray for them and we encourage them and we visit them wherever we have the opportunity. That means churches in our community, churches in our county, in our state, in our nation, churches in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, wherever there is gospel faithfulness. We rejoice because Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and worshiped and glorified as Christians grow in him. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray.